Greetings, nature lovers. This is Dale with Nature's Edge. I'm going to go through uh, a little of nature's news with you this morning before we get into our, our regular show. And I just finished reading an interesting article about ocean resiliency in the face of, uh, of climate change. There's a new uh, study that reports that marine ecosystems can take thousands rather than hundreds of years to recover from climate-related upheavals. Uh, the study was done over a period of time and uh, was published by the Academy of Sciences, and it analyzed thousands of invertebrate fossils to show that ecosystems recover from climate change and seawater deoxification might take place on a millennium scale instead of uh, on a hundred-year scale. And, and this study is the first of its kind and, uh, and to be published. So it's kind of interesting to see that uh, maybe our oceans don't recover as quickly as, as we have thought about it in the past. And uh, I, I know it was something that kind of opened my, mind, my eyes up a little bit. And uh, also, time and again, Mother Nature finds a way to prove just how inadequate human technology is compared to her own mysterious tools. And this has to do with earthquake predictions and, and a new study uh, that was just published in Physics and Chemistry of the Earth. And the research found uh, compelling evidence of wild animals uh, are really able to predict uh, earthquakes uh, coming long before uh, humans or any of our uh, technology or gadgets really are able to do it by their actions. And uh, this study took place uh, uh, as a result of some cameras that were set up uh, in an animal uh, park and uh, right before a major earthquake took place, actually about two weeks before a major earthquake took place down in Peru, they noticed that the animals all disappeared or a huge number of them were disappearing. So they're looking now at being able to use this uh, animal, animal behavior as a predictor for, uh, for earthquakes uh, for us humans. So I thought that was some interesting uh, stuff that was going on. And another uh, study that I was just reviewing had to do with the moon. We, people seem to think that when there's a full moon, uh, crazy things happen. Uh, however, this study shows that the moon is not to blame for life's craziness. And uh, according to this study, it, it uh, just disproves even what a lot of intelligent people think, that uh, uh, the crazy in us all seems to come out uh, at a full moon, and uh, that's just not the way it is. Uh, so in spite of scientific e evidence, uh, um, people, they, they continue to believe this, but it's not true. And uh, researchers really blame what scientists refer to as the confirmation bias. That's uh, people's tendency to inter interpret information in a way that confirms their beliefs and ignore data that uh, contradicts those uh, those beliefs. So, guys, it ain't the moon driving you nuts. It's something else. Uh, maybe your wife or your radio producer or something like that. Anyway, <laughs> that was for Leslie, and you guys all know that. Um, we got an interesting show today. I've got, uh, got some guests here from the... Uh, the Scottish Tartan Museum, located in Franklin, North Carolina. Uh, and it's also the Heritage Center, I think, uh, is part uh -huh. of the name. And um, got a couple of gentlemen here uh, in the audience with me, Mr. Jim uh, Aikens and uh, Daniel Will Williamson. And uh, Jim, you're sort of the chairman of the board and, and chief bottle washer and Daniel, you're the uh, curator That's correct. Uh, of yes. the museum. Yes, right. uh, Jim, why don't we start with you? Why don't you just tell us what is the Scottish Tartan Museum? 
The Scottish Tartan Museum was formed uh, or started in 1988 up in Highlands, North Carolina by the uh, Scottish Tartan Society. Dr. Gordon Teal of Chellock was the uh, president at that time, and he's responsible for getting the museum here in the United States. Um, what we do is... Uh, help people uh, as they come in the store. We look their name up and hopefully find a Scottish connection, whether it be a clan or a district tartan. And uh, we can show them some history on their surname, uh, information on their clan, that type of thing. Um, the gift, we are a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. All of us that work there are volunteers. And uh, all the proceeds from the gift shop go toward keeping our museum going. So it's, uh, and this is the only Scottish Tartan Museum in the United States, isn't it, Jim? That's correct. Um, Daniel, you've, you've just recently come on board as, as curator. Right. Um, I've been with the museum a number of years, uh, but uh, recently the board voted to make me the curator. Um, now, to add to what Jim was saying, the uh, the museum itself uh, tells a story of the history of tartan and highland clothing uh, along with uh, some history related to scotland and in, in with it and also it uh, brings in uh, some of the history of scots if they have immigrated here to the united states so and a lot of a lot of the a lot of the scots that immigrated in the united states i mean they they're all over the. They're scattered all over the United States, but a lot of them did come through the Carolinas, didn't that's, they? That's correct. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so, and, and I think it's interesting that a lot of uh, a lot of people don't really realize the connection that the the Carolinas have to uh, really to the history of, of the of the Scots mm -hmm. in in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, both with our, uh, we have some towns like Highlands, North Carolina. Right, and, uh, just the place names and absolutely. street names and. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of games, Highland games, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in this part of the country That's that correct. Uh, kind of reflect uh, uh, mm -hmm. on our on our, on that Scottish uh, heritage. Right. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little mm -hmm. about uh, uh, Daniel. What uh, when when people come to the museum, what what are they going to see? Well, um, if when they go down to the museum, uh, the first thing they're going to see is is our. Um, what I consider to be the quintessential Highlander, which is Rob Roy McGregor. And uh, we tell the story of um, its the relation of what he's wearing, uh, the history of that type style of clothing. Uh, he's, uh, he's wearing what we call in Gaelic the Philomore, which is uh, Gaelic for the, uh, the great wrap. And it's a, uh, a wrap of tartan. It could also be a solid color, by the way, but usually it was a tartan or what we would call a tartan, and uh, it's about at least four to six yards in length and about 50 to 60 inches wide. And uh, during his time period, to achieve it in that width, you would actually have to weave double the amount of cloth because the weaving looms at the time were only about 25, 30 inches wide. And then we have a, a, a weaving loom off to the side to, uh, to help illustrate that as well. Do they um, are all uh, 
Is all of the weaving now done in, in Scotland, or are there some weavers in the United States? There are weavers in the United States. Um, with fact, the museum's been on good relations with some of them for, for many years. Um, some of them that we've known, I think, might be retiring now from it. Um, uh, a name that comes to mind is Marjorie Warren, a uh, really well-known weaver here in the United States, actually here in Carolinas. And uh, then there's uh, actually been some weaving up in Canada, uh, a weaving firm up there. Um, but most of the uh, tartan that is commercially woven does come out of Scotland. And the um, um, when we come back, uh, we've, we've got about a minute here uh, before we go to break, but when we come back, one of the things that I really want to talk a little bit about that I think a lot of people don't understand is how the different clans and the tartans came together, the different mm-hmm. plaids. Um, a little bit of the uh, history, uh, Daniel. If you and Jim can can talk about that a little bit, sure, because yeah. I, I know that's uh, I know when I wear my kilt, uh, that's a question. Two questions I get. Yeah. Obviously, the first one is, "What do you wear under it?" And uh, <laughs> you know, we we've all uh, all had that. And then the second one is, "Where did what determined uh, uh, the Stuart Plaid, or what mm-hmm. determined uh, the McGregor, or what determined the different uh, the different tartans out out there?" So, uh, as we come back from the break, uh, we, we're going to uh, discuss that a little bit. You're listening to Dale Stewart with Nature's Edge, and we're going to take a little pause, and we will return after these brief messages. Gotta let that music play just for a second. I love the pipes. Welcome back. This is Dale with Nature's Edge, and and we are talking today to a couple of gentlemen from the Scottish Tartan Museum and Heritage Center, located in Franklin, North Carolina. Uh, Mr. Jim Akins and Daniel Williamson. And before we took a break, uh, guys, I wanted you to. Uh, Daniel, I want you to talk a little bit about the history of the plaid and the, where that all came from and how did it uh, develop into what it is. Well, um, the the earliest known uh, tartan, and we like to use the term tartan, uh, um, the, the word plaid is actually an old Scots word that's supposed to be pronounced plaid, which actually literally means blanket. Blanket. It has actually no reference whatsoever to pattern or, or design. Um, whereas we use the word tartan uh, today, which is a modern term, actually, to, uh, to describe the, uh, the pattern of the cloth. And the old Gallic term is brecken for that. Now, um, as far as for the, uh, the, the patterns and the tartans and stuff itself, in Scotland, the earliest known uh, artifact tartan comes from the area of Falkirk. Um, I think it was around 325 A.D., um, and it was um, some archaeologists found some pottery with some uh, Roman coins mixed in with the cloth. It was a little piece of cloth, about, I don't know, six inches by six inches roughly. And uh, so that it was a simple check pattern. Um, it's also called the shepherd's tartan. 
But um, as far as from there, uh, most people get think that their clan tartan or what whatnot is is a very ancient thing and it's been around a very long time. Uh, when the truth of the matter is, is the history when it comes to the kilt, the history of that, and the Felamore, which I mentioned before, uh, the earliest known date we have for the Felamore is fifteen ninety four, and and then as far as for actual tartans with names to them for for to describe the clans, that's actually something that doesn't come around till around the early eighteen hundreds, uh, when the weaving firms started to design many tartans and give very many names to them. And it was more of a of a myth that the clans would like to boast that these are our ancient tartans and they've been around a long time. So most of the tartans that you see today are only about a couple hundred years old um, as far as the clan tartans. And then uh, there's a few that uh, go back to the 1700s for various things like the Black Watch and uh, some other tartans. One of the, um, the Gordon dress or the Aberdeen tartan is... Uh, is to the 1700s as well, but uh, this, this is really not a whole lot. Now, the Black Watch, it's military. Correct? Right, and it, it was actually a police force police originally, force. and it's a military now. It didn't. It was only a police force for, for roughly around 10 or 15 years, <laughs> uh, designed uh, or created to police the uh, rebellious uh, Highland Scots, or the Jacobites, as some would say, and uh, um, very quickly became a, a, a regiment in, in the Highlands. So the weavers actually sort of determine the different colors of the different right and tartans as and far as for yes and uh, now as far as for the the mystique of the of a clan tartan having a name um, the the going theory is that the a local weaver would use particular local plant life to create particular color dyes and was probably. Um, more accustomed to weaving a specific pattern because they like that pattern. And so maybe it, at one time it might have been recognizable for someone to say, I've seen that before. You must be from Argyle. So that is a possibility. There's no real hard uh, evidence to support that, but that is the going theory that it could be the start of where the concept of people from a specific area wearing a specific uh, pattern. Pattern. And, uh, but today, I think people just automatically assume that if, 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 if they're a Stewart or McGregor mm-hmm. or, or any of the other many, many, uh, Williamson, any of the mm-hmm. many names out there, um, that, that, uh, that particular tartan, uh, uh, has been with that family forever. Right. Uh, <laughs> and that's not true. That's not necessarily, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That is not necessarily true. And and actually, the weavers are the dyes that were available in a certain region, sort of then determine uh, what the tartan was going to the colors in the tartan. Right. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I, mm-hmm. I I learned something today, uh, uh, which uh, I did not know. The uh, what's the sort of the history? Uh, you, you said that the the kilt really came about in the. Uh, in the early 1800s, or was that just well, the, the tartan the, kilt? Well, the modern kilt, uh, yeah, the is, modern kilt. Um, that you see with sewn-down pleats. Um, the earliest style was a box-pleated style consisting of around four yards of fabric. Um, in the, it was around the end of the 1700s after the ban of tartan was lifted. It was a ban on tartan for 30-something years. Um, I 
could be here for an hour explaining just well, that. Well, I'm going to have to ask you about the ban on the tartan. <laughs> well, I, but, well, basically what had happened was um, uh, the, fa- the last Jacobite rising uh, in 1745 and 46, um, after the Battle of Culloden Moor, um, roughly a year after that, the government uh, posted a ban, a, a prescription of the, uh, of, the, of the tartan. It was a ban on carrying of weapons and the wearing of Highland clothing is what it was. You've mentioned the word Jacobite mm-hmm. uh, several times. Mm-hmm. You want to explain to our audience? Yeah, I, I really should. Um, that is sort of uh, the last, um, it sort of describes the era of, of what a lot of people call a kilt. But uh, uh, what had happened was in uh, the 1688, um, King James was dispossessed from the throne of England and Scotland. And then uh, uh, William the Third of Orange became king with, through a creative marriage, and uh, James's uh, wife had a son, and he had an heir. And then the, uh, the supporters formed uh, uh, an army, and they called themselves Jacobite, which comes from the Latin of Jacobus for James. So that's well, where that, that comes. That's... So any of the supporters of the Stuarts. Um, Stuart. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Stuart dynasty, uh, oh, they were called Jacobites. And that lasted for about 50-ish years or so. Was that the S-T-U-A-R-T? It was the French spelling. Version. Yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> my grandfather would be glad to uh, to know that, although he probably, he probably does. And uh, <clears throat> as many of my listeners know, I'm... Uh, I am Scottish, and uh, uh, my family is actually uh, came over here. Uh, we're only in our third generation. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm third from, myself. <laughs> yeah, from from Scotland. So, uh, and I like to go back, and uh, it, it's it's a beautiful place. Um, so we got a little history there. When did the uh, and what caused do you think, uh, uh, Daniel, the, the migration from Scotland into the United States? Well, the, the there are there's several. Um, there's the the earliest, which is what we call the Scots Irish or Scotch Irish, as some people like to say. Um, the more uh, preferred term amongst a lot of historians today are Ulster Scots. Um, basically, those are the people that were transplanted into Northern Ireland and Ulster. Um, it was a, something that was set up with um, King James I of England and uh, Hugh Montgomery. And eventually, after about three generations or so, these people who didn't really mix well with the Catholic Irish, because they were very staunch Protestants, mostly Presbyterians, uh, they'd start to immigrate to uh, the American colonies. So, so that was that was sort of the the beginning. That of was the, the main beginning of it. We're going to get back into some more of the uh, sort of the history of of the Tartans and the and the Scottish. Uh, Coming to America after this uh, after this pause uh, to uh, to raise a little money for the show. So you're listening to Dale Stewart with Nature's Edge. We shall be back after this brief pause.
Welcome back, one and all, to Nature's Edge. This is Dale. We are talking today about uh, to some gentlemen with the Scottish Tartan Museum. We're learning all about tartans and uh, kilts and the history of, of uh, the Scots. Uh, and um, Daniel, right before we broke, you, you were kind of talking about the Scot-Irish. Mm-hmm. And I know there's some some people are con- get confused. I think about the Irish and the Scottish. I mean, mm-hmm. th- they tend to know they're two different uh, areas mm-hmm. within within the in the world. But uh, they both uh, they both have tartans, correct? And they both right. have well, kilts. Or well, what's the well? Uh, your Irish tartans are very modern. Most of them were designed in the 1990s. So they ripped us scotch off. Is well, it, I think it's um, it was more of a, a marketing scheme by the woolen mills in, tar- in, uh-huh. in Scotland <laughs> more than go. anything else. Um, and but the Irish um, got onto the kilt wearing scene in the 19th century with the popularization of pipe bands in Ireland. Uh, so when as far as that would be the historical uh, connection right there. Uh, beyond that, not so much. So the. Um, I mean, I know that, uh, and we were also talking about what sort of caused the migration of uh, of, of the Scotch Irish to uh, to the United States, and and in particularly uh, as we stated earlier, a lot of them did come through the Carolinas. That's right, came right down the wagon uh, trail mm-hmm. and everything, and um, and it's like you always like to talk about the connection between the Cherokee and and the Scots. I just think that uh, they they just fit in in the area. Well, I think you know there were an awful lot of similarities. I mean, exactly I mean, mm-hmm. uh, between the between the Scots and and particularly the Native Americans and particularly the Cherokee uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, they, they both have clans. Mm-hmm. You know, we we both have chiefs. Mm-hmm. Um, both indigenous people. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know, uh, particularly the Highland Scots were are the indigenous people of Scotland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, um, the the picks and connections to the old Neolithic Scots absolutely. that used to be there. And uh, of course, there's a lot of other DNA thrown in there. The uh, the uh, the Dalriada, the, uh, the the Scotie tribe from Ireland that uh, immigrated in around 500 A.D. roughly. Uh, a lot of Norse blood and some Viking, uh, yeah, uh, the, some Norman ancestry, and and even a little bit of Anglo-Saxon occasionally. But uh, yeah. but the, you know the uh, the basis for a lot of that uh, um, for, for in the Highlands, it's a it's a really t- strong meld between the Picts and the um, and the Dalriada, those uh, those Irish uh, tribe that it came in that. Uh, that the Romans called them the Scots or the Scotee, so the, the technical term is Dalriata. So, it's a uh, man. It's all fascinating stuff to me. Yeah, the um, and and the Cherokee sort of, I think, in a lot of ways, saw the uh, saw the Scotsman that came in here as uh, as sort of a kindred spirit uh, because of the way they they were. And, and there was a, there was a fair amount of intermarriage uh, between the, mm-hmm. the Cherokee women and and Scotsmen. And uh, and of course, one of the famous uh, chiefs of the of the Cherokee uh, uh, was uh, was was Scottish and uh, more Scottish than uh, than he was Cherokee. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, the um, 
I'm, I've gone yeah, blank. Yeah. Both I, of I, us are names gone blank. Jim, I, what's his name? The chief. John Ross. John James Ross. I cannot believe that. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I cannot believe that I went brain dead on that. And, uh, thanks, Jim, for jumping in. Daniel and I both were looking at each other going, what is – but John Ross actually was the, was the principal chief of the Cherokee during the Trail of Tears. and. Mm-hmm. That's that's the area that I'm supposed to be the expert on, and I, I went absolutely, absolutely blank, uh, blank on that. And uh, I'll blame that on uh, on Kathy. Uh, Kathy is Jim's wife, and she stood up and started taking pictures and made me just go brain dead. Uh, well, you had the pose. About that, yeah. I, I had to stop and, and, and do the do the pose. But, yeah, he, he was actually only an eighth Cherokee and uh, and, and was Scottish uh, and, and used his... Uh, his intellect uh, in a lot of ways to uh, to help the Cherokee uh, uh, fight removal. I mean, they they wound up losing that, but they were the last tribe that was that was removed there. Which is also a very similar story to the Scottish. Absolutely, yeah, so, you, yeah. You, yeah, yeah. The uh, uh, and I think that was another uh, uh, similarity that they had there. Mm-hmm. That uh, again, both both were people that were sort of forced uh, from their mm-hmm. homeland. You want to yeah. talk a little about? How the Scottish were forced and by right. Who? Well, let's well, let's we talked about the Scots. All right, let's talk about the Highland Scots. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mentioned about the 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 Battle of Culloden and all that stuff. And um, it's around that time after that that uh, Highland Scots start to leave. Um, at that point, it's not really forced, um, but it's a lot of it is brought on by this demoralization that came about. Correct and. Mm-hmm. But by the uh, early 19th century, um, we get the Highland, what we call the Highland Clearances. They're in their full swing. And basically what's happening is uh, your local lairds and your chiefs, um, in order to um, maintain their titles, keep their land, they are given deals, and some of them are just doing it, that they start to sell the land out from underneath their tenants or the, who have been their clansmen and women living there on the land. And these people have virtually nowhere to go. And, of course, the most popular place to immigrate to at that time would have been the United States. So Yeah. Yeah, they, um, yeah it, it's interesting to me um, that, at least, at least in the research that I've done, that the Scots looked at land very similar to the way the Indians looked at it. They didn't really look at it as an ownership. They looked at it as more of a... A relationship uh, is, that, is that correct? I, I could go with that. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just you know, that's just reading and interpreting mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and trying to uh, look at things. And as you know, oftentimes in history and the way things are, you you sometimes have to read kind of between the lines mm-hmm. uh, about the way uh, way they do. And and the Scots also had a very uh, most of their history was passed down orally. Uh, not written, uh, right? Was also true of the Native American, right? And which makes studying a lot of Scottish history very difficult. Um, you actually end up looking, having to look at uh, the records of the English or the records of the Romans or or whatnot, and you have to. It, it's hard to extrapolate what what their um, what actually did happen and what was said and whatnot because a lot of times it's very clear, especially when you're reading a lot of the Roman records. That it's it's kind of invent it kind of invented uh, some of you know their side of the story. Well, you know, and all it, of all of history is sort of written by the the winners, exactly, or the, or the people yeah. that have the power, mm-hmm. or the authority, and uh, I, I agree a lot. Uh, that's where a lot of that comes from, and 
And um, <laughs> but even when you're reading that, whether you're reading the the English or the Roman. Uh, you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt, as we say, because mm-hmm. uh, you are getting it through their uh, through their mm-hmm. lenses and, mm-hmm. and the way they perceive the uh, perceive the Scots at that time. So, um, there's Scots uh, and Irish uh, pretty much all over the United States, correct? I mean, you, yes. You guys, I guess, uh, at the museum, you have people uh, coming in there from kind of all over. Yes. Uh, I mean, we've had people come in from. South Africa, <laughs> you know, um, New Zealand and Australia and uh, all over. We, um, people are, are really shocked to see that this type of a thing is, is here nestled in the mountains of North Carolina. Um, and especially some of the people that are really shocked to see it are people who are from Scotland. Yeah. They, they have no, had no idea that something like this existed. Daniel, what's the? Uh, we got about a minute left. What what is the main question people ask you when they come into the museum? Is there one that kind of stands out? Uh, why is this museum here? And why is it in North Carolina? <laughs> well, um, it was kind of already answered in the beginning of the show, but uh, it had to do with uh, uh, Dr. Gordon Teal liking this area and setting up the. Uh, Museum there because he knew there were a lot of people of Scottish heritage and ancestry. In there, this is Dale Stewart and Nature's Edge. We're going to take a pause, and when we come back, we're going to listen to Jim a little more talk uh, a little more about the business side of the Scottish Tart Museum and tell us a little more about the museum and what's uh, what's there and uh, what's coming up. We shall return. Leslie, I'm glad you found this music. Kind of fits in with what we're talking about, doesn't it? I am Dale Stewart. This is Nature's Edge, and we are talking to Jim Akins and Daniel Williamson with the Scottish Tartan Museum and Heritage Center, located over in Franklin, North Carolina, in the beautiful western mountains of North Carolina. And uh, Jim's wife, Kathy, is also here in the studio causing problems, but she's... uh, She's quite a quite a, quite a lady within herself, and also very knowledgeable. Um, Jim, I'm going to turn uh, to you a little bit. We've been talking a lot about the history, and Daniel has been giving us some uh, some great history lessons. Uh, uh, let's talk about the museum itself a little more. Uh, what are the hours? When is it open? Where is it located? Uh, how do people get in there? Sure. Uh, we are located at 86 East Main Street, downtown Franklin, North Carolina. We uh, are open 5 to 10, Monday through Saturday. We have a website that uh, you can go to. Uh, it's Uh That is our website. You can email us. Uh, w, uh, I'm sorry. Scott Tartans at scottishtartans.org. We, uh, you can call us at 828-524-7472. And I'll put all this up on, uh, on, on my Facebook page and, and other social media, too, for people that want to find all this. Um, Jim, are you open for, for groups? I mean, do, do you get any school groups come through there, or do you, do you recommend... Uh, uh, they contact you guys before a group shows up, or how do you how do you deal with that? We we do have a lot of school groups. We also have uh, uh, tours for uh, groups of uh, retirees that want to come through. 
Uh, we do ask, if possible, to give us a couple weeks' notice so that we can get a guide, a tour guide lined up and um, make sure that uh, we we have the tour guides, that uh, we have someone there, uh, additional people to help do research on their names. Um, that is uh, one of the services that we supply is uh, research. Is that done in-house or can that be done through the website? That is done in-house. Uh, on our website, you can uh, do a tartan search if you know the name of the tartan. Um, but uh, as far as the name search, we do that. If people want, they can email us or call us, and we can do the search and uh, email it back to them. Is there a charge for that? No charge. It, it is free. It is, it's uh, one of the free services there. Um, Daniel, let me ask you real quick. Um, can I buy a kilt? Sure can. Through you guys? Sure can. You can have one that is uh, made in Scotland and have it it'd be shipped here, and then we would bring it to you, ship it to you, or you can pick it up. Or you can uh, get the uh, older style. I mentioned it at one point. Uh, it's called the box pleat style kilt. It's one of the only places around you can get it at, um, consisting of around four yards of fabric. It's uh, the early, um, it, well, the, it was came about around the end of the 1700s and the early 1800s as a style kilt. And and um, talk to a little bit about because uh, I know occasionally when I wear my kilt, uh, people always ask me about all the accessories that <laughs> seem to be hanging around uh, my waist and mm -hmm. and shoulders and everything. Could you we, describe some of that? We can outfit you with everything that you need, from the shoes to the top of your head. Uh, the pouch that you mentioned yeah. uh, is called a sporing, right. which is Gaelic for purse. Uh, but uh, we also have skin dues, sporings. We can get uh, dress sporings, daywear sporings, uh, fur, leather, anything that you want like that. We also, uh, like I said, can outfit you uh, with everything you need from the formal Prince Charlie jacket to... Uh, a day wear jacket, the uh, skin dues that you carry, your bonnets, the different styles of those. Uh, we can outfit you any anything you need. Jim, can you help reenactors? I know there are a lot of reenactors out there. Uh, you know, when looking at particularly around the 19th century, that are that are looking for authentic uh, uh, gear. We can. Uh, we can help them with that. Uh, Daniel is very good in that. He has started a group called Brecken Clan, which is a living history group, and uh, they show different periods of Highland dress. So Daniel is very good. Daniel, that. do you guys go to schools? I mean, do yes, you do we we go to schools, uh, uh, outdoor presentations, inside presentations, museum tour presentation. Um, we're not even a year old yet, and uh, we're we're getting to be uh, pretty popular and busy. So, I need to uh, I need to get your information and take you with me on some of my uh, yeah. Actually, it, I guess I could get a plug. I mean, this this weekend on uh, this Saturday, we will have our Tartan Day uh, ceremony or our celebration, and Brecken Clan will be there to give tours from one to four. And that'll be at the museum, at, and, at and that date, museum. that's uh, that would be April the fourth. April the fourth. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, 
for uh, for those of you. And uh, is there a charge to attend that? Or no, no. Is there a charge to attend the museum, Jim? Presently, we have a two dollar admission fee for adults, uh, children six to twelve, or a dollar. Uh, we're in the process of expanding the museum, and. Uh, the town gave us a grant, and we've had quite a few donations that were uh, very, very nice donations. And uh, hopefully we can have that expansion open uh, by June 20th. That's what we're so shooting for. So for this season, this, yes. this vacation yes. season, you're hoping, uh, yeah. hoping to have that, uh, have that available for people. Yeah. Um, uh, after that's, After we open, we may go up. A small amount on the admission. Fee. Well, I can I can tell people because I've been to the museum a number of times, and I can tell you two dollars is a heck of a bargain uh, to be able to go mm -hmm. in there. And and also, uh, if I recall correctly, you also have um, a fair number of books and things available for sale as well. We, we do. We have books. Uh, anything from uh, tartan dress uh, to uh, tartan research books. And uh, history on, uh, we have uh, a lot of good history books, but we also have uh, clan heritage books on some of the different clans. Uh, they're doing some remodeling or some building next door. So guys, if you hear something that sounds like a saw over the, uh, over the radio, um, I think that's what it is. It may be Leslie snoring in the... Uh, in the control room, but I'm pretty sure that it's 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 something else over there. Um, Jim, I'll ask you first. Anything else you want to bring up about the uh, museum that you can think of right now? Or? I would. Uh, like I said, uh, the museum operates off proceeds from the gift shop and donations, and we welcome donations in any amount. Uh, you can do it in a number of ways uh, th through our website mailing us a check, calling us and giving us your credit card. Um, and we uh, uh, we appreciate all donations that we can get. What about you, Daniel? Got any, any last words? Uh, anything that we need to know about the, uh, about the Scottish Tartan Museum or about Scottish history or about the kilt? What do you wear under your kilt? Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll... I'll Everything's in perfect working order. There you go. That, that is, i got to remember that answer because I get asked all the time. My wife always says, oh, for God's sakes, don't ask him. He might yeah. show you. Um, <laughs> or you could say socks and shoes. That's it. There you go. That's a, that's a good answer there. So really anything that, that one wants to know about their Scottish ancestry, their history, kilts, um, tartans, um, you guys are, are more than happy to help them right. with that. Right. We, we are the place around to get you started in, in, in the right direction yes. on that. So. This is Nature's Edge with Dale Stewart. We have certainly enjoyed our guests, Mr. Jim Akins and Daniel Williamson from the Scottish Tartan Museum and Heritage Center in Franklin, North Carolina. And until next time, I hope to see you in the wild. <laughs>